morning, and thank you for welcoming me. It is a, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here and open God's word with you this morning. I've heard a lot about you from Kevin and from other folks in the Presbytery. It's nice to finally see you guys and get to be with you in person. Uh, no, as we, as we begin the sermon today, I wanted to remind you of two things related to uh, the PCA and the Presbytery and life in general, and that know that you're not alone, right? You just said you believe in the communion of the saints. One way that that's expressed in our denomination is no church is ever by herself. There are always churches around that got, have, we've, we've got your back. And so I'm in one of your sister churches, and we've got your back, and you've got ours. So never feel like you're by yourself. The communion of saints is real. And as part of your denomination, there are churches all over Minnesota and South Dakota and North Dakota that all work together in this thing we call a presbytery, which we just finished. It was the longest meeting <laughs> I ever remember. So pulpit swap is really nice. So know that you are loved by others who are outside your church and who care about you, and we've been praying for you. And I also wanted to remind you that your pastor and his family love you very much, right? Aiden and Deborah and Seth, they love you. And one way that you can tangibly see that your pastor and his family love you is he just finished his ordination trials. Do you guys know this? Is this commonly known? Yes. So, and we call them trials for a reason, right? So if you're a student or you've been a student, think of all of your finals all piled up together in one big stack that you then have to write through in one, in one sitting and then you sit in a room with about 10 other men who can then ask you anything they want to for as long as they'd like about what you wrote. And then you get to go to a whole room full of people who will do exactly the same thing. Does that sound like fun? That's what he just finished doing so that he can pastor you. And that's what his family just finished giving up his time and his energy as he studied and prepared so that he can pastor you together. Your pastor and his family love you. And one way you can know that is all of the work he just went through in his ordination trial. So I'm going to see you again in a little while when we get to ordain and install him as, as your official pastor in the PCA. But for now, know that Pastor Aiden and Deborah and Seth love you, but God loves you more than anybody else. So let's listen to the word that he's given us and, and the love that we see in Christ in the book of Psalms. If you want to open your Bibles with me, we like to go through Psalms at Grace Covenant in the summer. We're going to go through a Psalm together that we went through at Grace Covenant, Psalms 29 kind of sits in the middle of a group of psalms that go from Psalms 26 to 33, and this one is different than all of the other ones around us, and we're going to see why this morning. This psalm is a little bit unique in the midst of the group that it comes with. So if you would stand with me, I like people to stand when we read the Bible. So let's stand and read the psalm, and then I'll let you sit. You don't have to stand for the sermon, don't worry. And then we can sit, and we'll go through this text for a little while together. This is the word of God, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. 
The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray what the book of Psalms teaches us to do, that in Psalms 1, I pray that we would love your word. And at the end of Psalms 2, that we would take refuge in your son, Jesus Christ. Pray that you would use this word to that end this morning amongst us. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and sit down. June 3rd, 1980, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was a supercell thunderstorm hovering over the state of Nebraska, where I'm from. I'm actually old enough that I remember this. And it was moving at this glacial speed of about eight miles an hour, which is practically stationary. And it camped out over a city called Grand Island, which is right in the middle of Nebraska. And it stayed there. And then something happened that no one has ever seen in a supercell thunderstorm before or since. So if you're a weather nerd, you may have studied this storm. My wife is a weather nerd. She's studied this storm. It's something a meteorologist still working on. What happened with that storm? Here's what happened. It was something no one's seen before. A little bit before 9 p.m. on June 3rd, right, the beginning of summer and tornado season, the tornado sirens start going off in Grand Island. And in a three-hour period, seven tornadoes dropped down out of that thunderstorm and churned through and around Grand Island, Nebraska, plowing it up, including one that was an F4. That means it was about half a mile wide and 250-mile-an-hour winds. And it went straight down one of the main streets in town and made a tremendous mess. And the seven tornadoes were unusual, not just that there were seven of them, which is a lot in one thunderstorm, but that none of them went in a straight line. Because the storm was not moving, they all looped and crossed it. They all crossed their own paths at least once. And so you never knew where it was going to go next. You couldn't get out of the way because it could just turn the corner and come back at you. A friend of mine remembers that night very well. I used to work with him. and I used to be in IT in a different lifetime. He worked in the job that I was in. And he lived in Grand Island that night he remembers those tornadoes. He heard the sirens going off as one tornado after another starts popping down out of this thunderstorm. And he did a better job with the sirens than most Nebraskans do. So here's what a tornado siren in Nebraska means. It means go outside and see what's happening, right? As soon as you hear the siren. Or if you have a ladder, get up on the roof of your house so you have a better view so you can see what's going on. That's what we do when we hear the sirens because, oh, this will be fun. Where is it going? Well, he did better than that. He went into his garage and started doing some woodworking and working around his garage, right? He left the door about halfway open to keep the rain out, right, but to let the air in, and he listens to the sirens. He knows they're tornadoes, and he's just goofing around in his garage doing stuff until he sees one of his trash cans start to jiggle like this, right, and slide a little bit, and then it goes boom and gets sucked down his driveway. And then he watches the second trash can go jiggle, 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 slide boom down the driveway, and he thinks, I bet it's time to go in the basement now because there's something sucking my gas, my garage cans away down my driveway. And he went downstairs just in time because the tornado was coming down his street and his neighborhood. That's how Psalms 29 starts. It's that kind of storm. And there are tornado sirens going off at the beginning of the psalm because there's a supercell thunderstorm that's boiling its way into God's promised land. It's moving through from north to south. And it's not an ordinary storm. 
It's actually more terrifying than seven tornadoes blasting their way through your town because the storm that's coming is the Lord himself in his glory, with his strength, and the storm is him speaking with his voice. God is the storm, and the sirens are going off because he's coming. That's Psalms 29. In Grand Island, Nebraska, in that night of the twisters, as they call it, many homes and many businesses were destroyed, millions of dollars of damage, five people died, hundreds of people were, were injured. My friend and his family all survived. They had, what, three boys, a girl, the husband and the wife. They all lived because they found shelter in time. They got underground. They sought refuge. If they had been outside when the tornado blasted through their neighborhood, they probably would have been killed. Storms like that are terrible. They're terrifying. You have to know where you're going to go before the storm actually hits, right? By the time you can see the thing coming across the street, it's too late. You have to know where you're going to take refuge. You have to listen to the sirens when they go off. One of the five people who died in that storm was a, was a lady. She was not at home when she could see. I mean, she could see the tornadoes coming down. She was a little bit out of town. And instead of taking shelter when the sirens went off, she got in her car and she wanted to drive home to be with her family and to take shelter with them. But it was too late. But you have to start before the storm hits. And so she got partway home, and it picked up her car, and it killed her. Psalms 29 is that kind of storm. And why, why is a poem then? This is what I wonder when I read a poem like this. Why is a poem that about God and his glory and his strength, why is it written in the language of a ferocious storm pummeling the, the promised land? And if there's a storm coming, how are we supposed to find shelter from it? And the answer that's going to be found in Psalms 29 is only going to be found by going into the storm itself. So we get to do something. Look, this is what my wife would do if I let her, I think. She would love to be a storm chaser. She thinks it's fun to actually follow tornadoes around and see what they do. I don't enjoy that that much. We're going to go be storm chasers and follow the storm of Psalms 29 and see where it's going. We're going to follow the track as God in his storm plows his way from the promised land, comes in from the sea, starts in the north, plows his way through to the south. We're going to figure out what he's doing and what he's up to and why he's there. So after verse 0, we're going to start looking at this, right? What's going on? Verse 0, I call the superscript of David. Then there are four lines that kind of begin the storm. It kind of is it's brewing off the coast. And as, we, as we're looking at the first four verses, we're also looking at the psalms around it, which we're not going to read all of. But keep in mind, the psalms around it are very different than Psalms 29. There's no other storm here. The psalms around it are all home psalms. They're all, I want to be where God is. I want to be home with God. And how do I get there? Like Psalms 27.4. Right? One thing I've asked for, one thing I long for, and that is to be with the Lord where he lives in his temple and to see his face and to inquire of him. That's what I want more than anything else to be home. And all of the other psalms are home psalms. And in this psalm is a thunderstorm, which just seems strange. So why is, it a, why is there a thunderstorm in the middle of these I want to be at home psalms? Look at the first four verses, or the first two verses, the first four lines. Right? Poetry comes in lines. It works with imagery. I want you to look at the first word in each of those lines in your Bible. In verses 1 and 2, what do you see as the storm's brewing? Ascribe. Ascribe, ascribe, worship. See that? Ascribe, 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 worship. Those are the first 
words of the first four lines. And in the days before, like font, fancy fonts and bold and italic and all the things we can do to make things, you know, emojis to make things pop, how do you emphasize something? How did old Hebrew poetry make you want to, okay, I should notice this. This is in bold text because they couldn't do that. Well, one way Hebrew poetry makes you notice things, or one says, hey, look at me, it says, it repeats, ascribe, 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 worship. So the poem is repeating those words because it wants you to notice them. And another way Hebrew poetry helps you see its message is it repeats and then it rhymes. In poetry in Hebrew, poetry rhymes, this is in Hebrew, we're reading in English, but it was originally written in Hebrew. Hebrew poetry rhymes not the way sometimes we're used to with sounds, right, like rhyming sounds, it rhymes ideas. And so this is rhyming four ideas. Look at the four ideas it rhymes. Ascribe, O heavenly beings. Ascribe glory and strength. Ascribe glory to his name and then worship in the splendor of his holiness. So you see it repeating, you see it rhyming, and then you look at who David's talking to. Who is he speaking to? He's giving a command to somebody, and it's not you. He's talking to the heavenly beings. He's commanding folks in heaven. His prayer is aimed at praise starting in heaven, where the clouds are, where the storm forms. And he says, praise you, praise God, heavenly beings. And then there's glory and strength. So the poem's going to be about God's honor and his reputation. It's about his power and his ability. And then he says, the glory do his name. Are you familiar with the name of God? It's kind of shorthand for who he is and what he's like. It's Yahweh, or with him, or I am with you, right? It's the I am verb. And the I am with you, it kind of sounds like the home psalms that are similar around in the area of this psalm. I want to be with God. He is a God who is with his people. And if you tease it out a little bit more, if you go back to Exodus, where God reveals his name to Moses, there are five verbs that go with it very consistently that flesh out who God is and what he's like. It's all encapsulated in those four letters, L-O-R-D, God's name. I am the God who hears my people when they cry out for help. I am the God who sees my people when they are suffering. I am the God who remembers the covenant I've made with them. You just sang, great is thy faithfulness. He's the God who keeps covenants. I am the God who knows, and that is a personal, individual, experiential word. I am the God who knows what it's like to be you because I come down and I walk among you. And I am the God who delivers my people from death to life. That's who I am. That's the glory due my name. That's shorthand for who he is. He is the God who hears and sees and remembers and knows and delivers. That's Yahweh. And David is starting off his psalm, which is the storm brewing in the heavens, by saying, all you in heaven, praise God for the glory do his name, for who he is is a God like this. And then the call culminates in worship him because of his holiness, because of his purity, because of his set-apartness. Ascribe, 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 worship. And there's one more word that repeats four times. Did you see it in the first four lines? As the Hebrew poetry keeps rhyming and repeating. It's Lord, 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 Lord. Each line has God's proper name, capital L-O-R-D, in it. So Psalms 26 through 28, those focused on the psalmist. Those were David talking about his trials and his 
problems and his salvation and his praise. But Psalms 29 is not going to be about the psalmist. It's not about people. It's specifically about the Lord, about God. And God is coming in this terrifying, ferocious storm in his holiness, being worshipped by all of heaven as the storm forms off the shore of the promised land. And now the tornado sirens are going to start sounding and going off, and the storm is coming ashore, and the holy God of Israel is bearing down in the promised land. So David is starting off with a scribe, a scribe, a scribe, worship. And now we move into the heart of the storm, and that's the heart of the psalm. That's verses 3 through 9. We're going to do our storm chasing. We're going to read it again together, and I want you to listen. I want you to listen carefully as we read it. Read it for yourself in your Bible. Watch for the things that repeat. Watch for the things that rhyme, because those are going to draw your attention to the important parts of the psalm. There's going to be something that repeats. You might, If you like numbers, you might want to count how many times some of these things repeat. Let's start in verse 3. We're going to read through verse 9. This is the heart, the middle of the thunderstorm. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord, over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare, and all in his temple cry, glory. What was repeated? Not a rhetorical question. What was, what was repeated? The voice of the Lord. Thank you. Good job. And how many times did you count? Seven. Just like the seven Grand Island tornadoes, right? So the psalmist knew about their tornadoes and just didn't know. But seven's an important number, isn't it? It's the number of wholeness, of completeness, of finishedness in Scripture. The voice of the Lord is what is driving the storm. The voice of the Lord, in fact, is the storm. It's what comes from the mouth of God, his words. That's what's demanding worship from heaven. That's what's doing the work of the storm on earth. So we're going to look at that phrase more carefully. We want to pay attention to the voice of the Lord as it's speaking and driving the storm. What about the rhyming? Did you see some ideas or thoughts rhyming as you worked your way as we read through the psalm again? Now, personally, I did not do so well in my fourth grade poetry class, so I have a little more trouble with this part of the poem. I think it's harder to see rhyming in this poem, but Hebrew poetry has other ways of showing us what's important. You could also look at the poem's rhythm. Right? It repeats, it rhymes, and it has rhythm. Sometimes in a poem, we can get a beat going, da dun da dun da dun da dun Well, the way Hebrew poetry does that is not by syllables, but by words. So if you count the words, you can see the rhythm of the Hebrew poetry. Now, you might also say, well, I don't have a Hebrew Bible with me. I left it at home today. So that, that's fine. You can look this up in your Hebrew Bible when you get home. I'm just kidding. But if you look at your English, it's going to do the same thing, right? You can see that the lines are different lengths, and you can see which ones are longer and which ones are shorter. So take a look at them. There are seven lines. 
you see that the first one's a little longer, right? Has more words in it. The second and the third ones, they're a little short. They're, in fact, they're very short. They're just boom, boom, really quick. The fourth line is unusually long. There's a lot of extra words in the fourth line. The fifth and the sixth are about average, and the seventh one is longer, but not as big as the fourth one. See, that's the rhythm. And so the first thing I want, and I'm not sure if I can do this very well, but I'll try. The first thing I want you to notice about the rhythm is how the Hebrew poetry reflects real life. Hebrew poetry loves doing this. That whatever it's talking about in its poem, it loves making the poem sound like what it's saying. So this is actually written in a way that sounds like a thunderstorm. I think this is kind of cool. So when you're thinking about a thunderstorm, right, when you've heard the thunder and the lightning, is it all precisely spaced exactly in the metered, you know, every three beats, there's another boom, and then three, boom, two, three, boom, two, three. You know, it's not like the bass drum, because your drummer has a great sense of rhythm. But a thunderstorm is not like that, right? It's just crashing and booming in all kinds of different ways. Well, the lines of the poem are exactly like that. The voice of the Lord in scripture is almost always associated with thunder. So when you're hearing the voice of the Lord in this poem, you're hearing crashes of thunder. You notice the, the first one's kind of, and if I had something to hit, I would hit it to give you a good crash. But I think if I walked to the drum, the drummer would tackle me. So I'll leave it, I'll leave it alone. Just imagine drums or booms, right? The first one's kind of longer. It's boom, and it lasts a little while. And the next two, boom, boom, right after each other. Two claps, two lightning flashes, and they're like one second away, so they hit the roof, right? And then the fourth one is boom, and it just rolls for a long time, right? And the fifth and the sixth one are kind of boom, boom, and then the last one rolls longer. You're laughing at me. It hurts my feelings. And then and then the last one rolls along. But you see how the poem kind of reflects what it's talking about? Hebrew poetry loves to do that. It's really good writing. So you have these lines of different lengths with different kinds of thunderclaps as the storm explodes in the promised land. The second thing the rhythm does is it draws attention to three parts of the poem. The longer the line, the more noticeable it is because it's sticking out of the regular poetic meter. So the first line, the middle line, and the last line are being particularly highlighted in this psalm. So we could, and that doesn't mean the middle lines, the other lines, two, three, five, and six, aren't important. They're God's inspired word as well, and we need to hear them as well, but we also don't want to be here all afternoon in case a storm brews up. So we're just going to look at where the poem is especially directing our attention. It wants us to see line, especially line one, the middle line, and the last line. So let's look at those three, because those are going to tell us a lot about this storm as it's brewing its way down the promised land. This is line one. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. That's the first part, and then it repeats it. So think biblically, right? Think, think about the rest of Scripture, especially the book of Genesis. When is the first time, when is the beginning time that God is over the waters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, right? and the Spirit of God was hovering, and there was darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's the first time he's over the waters, just like he is in this storm. But what's he doing in Genesis? He's about to make a special place on earth called a garden, where he's going to make a special creature, man and woman, 
where they can live with him and be with him in perfect fellowship, worshiping him and enjoying his blessings. That sounds a lot like all of the other psalms that are around this one. Because all of the other psalms around this one are, I want to be where God is. I want to be with him. That's what happens the first time God's over the waters where the storm is brewing. God is making a place for mankind to be with him. And so we wonder, is something similar going on in this psalm? Why is it alluding to that? Why is it echoing Genesis? And if you keep flipping forward from Genesis to Exodus, you find the next time God is over the waters, what is he up to there? Now he's over the Red Sea, and he's hovering over the Red Sea, and he's separating them because he is the God who hears his people when they're trapped in the land of death, Egypt. He's the God who sees the suffering when they are there, enslaved in Egypt. He remembers that he made covenant promises to Abraham that they're going to be his people and they will be his God, and through them all nations will be blessed. And they can't do that in Egypt. And he's the God who knows. So he comes down and enters into their experience. And then he delivers them from death in Egypt to life in the promised land by the blood of the lamb and the death of the firstborn son. And as he's delivering them, he's over the waters, opening them so that his people can go through on the way from death to life to being with him in the promised land. You see how that with him home dwelling themes coming up again? He makes the garden so they will be with him. He makes, when they screw that up, now he's delivering them from Egypt and he's bringing them to be with him again. Just like all of the Psalms that are around this storm talk about. And we wonder, is this storm actually doing this with him work? that every other psalm around is telling us we should be longing for nothing less than being with God himself. So the, the voice of God, as the storm starts, is hovering over the waters. What's he doing? What's going on? What is the storm going to do? Where is it going? And so now we've got two quick thunderclaps, and now we're down at the third or the fourth, sorry, the fourth line, the middle line. It's the longest one of all, where it says that this is the heart of the storm now. We're in the eye of the hurricane. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, and Syria like a young wild ox. And so now we've got some fun stuff to look at. Because when you see phrases like cedars of Lebanon or Lebanon the place or Syrian, which is another place, you know what you're supposed to do, right? You pull out your concordance or you pull out your smartphone and search on it. A concordance is a book that is an index of Bible stuff that they use of every word in the Bible that we used to use in my day before I could pull my smartphone out of my pocket and do the same thing with a couple swipes. So we pull out a concordance or a smartphone and we search for Lebanon and cedars and Syrian because we want to see where else are those things used in the Bible? What does that even mean, right? This cedars of Lebanon doesn't really like grab me when I feel like that's nice. That sounds like Christmas trees. What, what are we doing with the cedars of Lebanon, right? Why do I care about Syrian jumping around like a calf? Who, where are these places? So we look them up and we get their context. And we use that to try to understand the psalm. And here's some good news and bad news, because I've done that. The good news is the cedars of Lebanon show up all kinds of places in the Bible, and they're actually pretty important. The bad news is, is they show up so many places in the Bible, we can't possibly look at all of them. So I'm going to just summarize three. 
three main spots where you see the cedars in Lebanon showing up, right? The Christmas tree farm that they're growing here in the north of the Promised Land in Lebanon. What's going on with that? Well, the first place they show up is First Kings. You know what they're being used for in First Kings? A they're building material for a very specific building project. Solomon is building God's temple, the place where God lives with his people on earth for worship and blessing, where sin is forgiven, where God's presence is with them, where they can come and be with their God, what Psalms 27 is talking about. I want to be with him where he lives, in his house. Solomon's using the cedars of Lebanon to build that spot. Well, that's kind of interesting, I think. Here's a second place they show up. They show up in Ezekiel chapter 17. And in Ezekiel 17, we have a very different context than 1 Kings. In Ezekiel, God is judging his people, his own people, for their sin. And he is actually removing them from the promised land and sending them off into exile to be taught not to sin. So he's sending them away from the promised land into Babylon in Ezekiel 17. That's what's going on. But as he sends them away, out of his presence, because they will not stop sinning, the cedars of Lebanon are being destroyed, but he grabs one of them in, the, in Ezekiel and snaps the top off. And he takes that little top of the Christmas tree, of the cedar tree, and he plants it somewhere else in good soil where it regrows. And it becomes a gigantic tree. And when it does so, it becomes shelter not just for Israel, it becomes shelter for all of the nations who are coming to God as well. I think that's really interesting. Jesus actually draws on the same passage to use in one of his parables about the kingdom of God as a mustard seed grows and it becomes a giant tree. And it's not just for Israel anymore, it's for all of the people God is calling from all of the nations across all of the earth. So this home theme is now being extended far beyond Abraham's physical descendants to include everyone and thus Syrian, a nation outside of Israel, shows up in this context. So here's the third, that's the second place. First place is the temple construction. Second place is it's a new kind of temple that God is building, but it includes people from all over the place. In third context, Zechariah 6 and 11, the voice of the Lord in Zechariah 6 and 11, the voice, remember, that's one of our main themes in the psalm. The voice of the Lord shows up again, and it's combined with the rebuilding of the temple and combined with the cedars of Lebanon. So the voice of the Lord goes out in Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, sends God's spirit into the four corners of the earth and calls all of the nations to come and worship the king. And the voice of God also sets aside at the same time as he's rebuilding the temple, at the same time as he's calling all nations to come, the voice of the Lord sets aside a new high priest, in Zechariah, whose name is Joshua. And you might know Joshua, if you translate it into Greek, it is Jesus. And if you translate it into English, it's Jesus. And this new high priest will reign as a king, and he will rebuild the temple. That's what's going on in Zechariah, associated with the voice of the Lord and the cedars of Lebanon. Zechariah is bringing all these things together, the sending of the Spirit and the coming of the nations and the work of the new priest, whose name is Joshua, who's also a king. All of that is going on in the cedars of Lebanon that this storm is coming and pushing on and knocking down. 
So at first it may not seem like a big deal that the storm is thrashing on their trees going everywhere and the tornadoes are ripping them up and throwing them around. It may not seem like a big, big deal that the cedars of Lebanon show up in the middle of Psalms 29 until you pull on that thread and you follow it and you see where else these things show up. This storm is clearing away old cedars, just like Ezekiel 17. And Lebanon and Syrian, and the na- these are all nations outside of Israel. They're jumping, right? They're skipping in joy. They're, I don't know if you've ever seen a baby calf. I grew up on a farm. Baby calves are very excited when they get born because they're not in their mama's tummy anymore. And they just run around jumping all over the place because they're glad to be out. That's the image. The nations are so excited because now as the storm is clearing away the old cedars and rebuilding a new one in which the nations are welcome, they get to be included where God is too and they get to be with him as God is with them. The same theme we see in all the Psalms around the storm. I want to be with God. How do I be where he is? Well, the nations are wanting that too and are coming in now with the cedars of Lebanon. That's the middle of the storm. That's the heart of what's going on here. Now look at the very end, the last line, the seventh thunderclap. It's a second call to worship. We had a call to worship this morning from Psalms 116. There's a call to worship at the beginning of Psalms 29 when David says all of the heavens will worship God where the storm is beginning. Now there's a call to worship, but it's on the earth. Do you see that as the storm's subsiding? It's finishing its work. It's moving out of the promised land. The tornado sirens are shutting off. The storm is done. And all in this new temple that's been rebuilt are crying glory. They're worshiping. And so earth now matches heaven at the end of the storm. They're the same. If you've been around the church any amount of time, you've probably heard something called the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And what's the next line? On earth, just like it is in heaven. That's what has just happened in this psalm. What started off in heaven is now completely true on earth because of the storm that's come through the promised land, hit the cedars, rebuilt the temple, and brought in the nations. That's what the storm's doing. You'll notice it's doing two things at the same time. And these two themes go hand in hand through scripture in lots of spots. The storm is sweeping away some people in judgment as it's taking away the old. And the psalm or the storm is saving some people in salvation as it brings in the new. It's doing both, sweeping away in judgment and bringing deliverance and salvation, which leaves the, the psalm has been wanting us to ask at this point this one question. What is it that makes the difference between whether the storm sweeps me away in judgment or saves me in deliverance. There's only one voice speaking, all seven thunderclaps, and it's doing two things. It will either sweep you away in judgment or it will save you forever. Which will the storm do for me? 
Now let's look at the end of the psalms. The storm has subsided. Verses 10 and 11 conclude the psalm. And you want to watch again for repetition and rhyming and rhythm. Verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. So at the end of the storm, God himself is king. And the son of David is on his throne. And God is reigning over judgment and he's reigning over salvation in the same way he reigned over the flood of Noah. It's the same illusion, right? Noah's flood was one of judgment and salvation at the same time. And the Lord is giving strength to his people as the storm is doing its work, both judging evil and bringing them to be with him at home. And he's granting his people that which the garden brings, that which the temple brings, that which the new temple brings, peace. This is what we need. We need shelter. We need refuge. We need to take it while we can before the storm breaks. What difference is there? What will happen to me? What makes the difference between whether I'm swept away in judgment or whether I am saved by the coming storm? All, all hinges on whether you will take refuge before the storm comes. Let's zoom back one step. I love context. I think it helps us understand everything in the Bible. Psalms 29 does not stand by itself. It's part of a book. Psalms 1 and 2 tell us where to take refuge from the storm of Psalms 29. Psalms 1 begins, blessed is the man who loves God's word. Psalms 2 ends, blessed is anyone who takes refuge in God's son. The main thesis then of the book of Psalms being the whole book of Psalms is teaching us if you love the word of God, listen to it because it will point you to a right relationship with the son of God and in him is the only place to find refuge from the storm and find a life of blessing now and forever. Love the word because it will point you to the son. That's the book of Psalms in a nutshell. That's what Psalms 29 is drawing on. You need shelter from the storm. And the only place you can find refuge is coming in faith. We just sang about it, right? The last song. I put my faith in the Son. I take refuge in him. Keep reading. Fast forward from Psalms 29's storm, because it's not the only storm, to Mark 4's storm. In Mark 4, it's not a thunderstorm. It's a hurricane. That's the word in Greek. It's a hurricane on the Sea of Galilee, and there's a little boat. And there's another man whose name is Joshua in Hebrew and Jesus in English in the back of that boat. And he's asleep in the middle of the hurricane in Mark 4 because he knows the storm can't touch him because he's the Lord of the storm. So he's snoozing. His disciples, however, are in a slightly different predicament. The boat is sinking, and they're freaking out. And they're trying to save the boat because they know that if the boat goes down and gets swamped, there's no Coast Guard in the Sea of Galilee at this time that didn't form until the 4th century AD, right? So right now, there's no Coast Guard to save them. And if the boat sinks, they're going to die. And they wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care that we're about to die in the storm? Not knowing that whoever is with the Son will not be harmed by the storm any more than the sun is. If you're in the boat with Jesus, if you have refuge in him, the storm cannot touch you because it will not touch him. And so Jesus wakes up and he rebukes them for their lack of faith. All you need is faith, just trust. You're with me. Nothing's gonna happen to you. I'm over the storm. 
and he tells the storm, peace, be still. And Charles Spurgeon in his sermon on that text says, and the roaring lion curled up like a little baby kitty cat on the shore and went to sleep. And Jesus told the storm to go be quiet. And then the disciples asked in an unusual show of acumen, because the disciples are usually not that bright, they ask a very good question in Mark 4. Who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this Jesus who stills the storm? That's exactly the right question to ask. Whether you're not yet a Christian and you're trying to figure out who is this Jesus and what is he about, or you are a Christian and you're spending your life learning and living and loving Jesus more. The storm of Psalms 29 is designed so that you will see that if you die apart from Jesus Christ, you actually will perish and that you need to take refuge in him by faith and be saved by his free gift of grace, his life, his death, his cross, his empty tomb can save you if you will but understand who he is and agree that he is Lord and Savior and then trust completely in him. Often at Grace Covenant, we have a commission at the end of the sermon. This is going to be my commission for you this morning. It's going to maybe seem strange since we're in Psalms to give you a commission from Mark, but this will be it. Read the rest of the book of Mark this week. It's short, three chapters a day, and you'll be done by next Sunday. Read it asking this question, the disciples' question, the Psalms 29 question. Who is this Jesus? If you're not yet a Christian, read it trying to figure out who he is and who he claims to be and what he says he has done. And if you are a Christian, read it trying to learn your Jesus better, that you might be more like him and love him and live like him more next week than you are this week and more the week after. And we do that by hearing the word of God and doing what it says. So your commission from the Psalms 29 thunderstorm is to pick up with the Mark 4 hurricane. Read the rest of the Gospel of Mark and ask yourself, who is this Jesus? Because Psalms, Psalms is telling you, you need to hear the word of God. It's going to point you to a right relationship with the Son of God. And he is the only way of life. He's the only shelter in the storm. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, saving Son, Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that you sit enthroned over the flood, that you are coming to give us life for those who are in Christ and judgment for those who are not. We acknowledge that you are the king forever, and we ask that you would give us strength, strength to have faith in you. When the storm of life comes, when this particular storm of judgment comes, that we would turn to you and find life in your name. We pray that you would bless your people here gathered to worship this morning with peace that we would enjoy just a little bit of on earth as it is in heaven as we hear and heed this text. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pray together. I'll just encourage us to spend some time in prayer uh, as we uh, reflect upon God's word and as we just responded with uh, the song Let's play in our heads right now um, to the Psalm 29 that we just uh, heard from. That 
And it starts with uh, the declaration of, or rather a depiction of the worship of God in the heavens. And, uh, like Pastor John um, you know, showed us that um, at the end, it's uh, the worship of God on earth. And um, you know, God, only God is to be worshipped whole universe and each and every one of our hearts um, you know, perhaps you know as we uh, reflect upon uh, his word uh, maybe we can ask a question of um, you know, if my heart is not worshiping God um, if there's any part of my life that is not glorifying to him um, like why uh, that is and I think I just really appreciate the imagery of the storm and the hurricane. And, um, and we see that, as we heard, it is not only um, God's just, righteous judgment, uh, but also salvation. And for those who listen to God's word, perhaps the storms you know, awake us wake us up from slumber uh, in the areas where we should be waking up and worshiping God, surrendering all of ourselves in those areas and uh, jumping up and down like a young calf. And just really showing us in His grace so that our lives can be aligned uh, with His worship. Could we uh, just search our hearts right now um, as God reveals what's in our hearts through His Word? And um, as we do that, um, not that we stay in despair of, oh man, why am I not worshiping? Um, but that we can truly take refuge in Jesus and find grace in Him right now so that we leave this place desiring to change, desiring to uh, worship Him in those areas by His grace. Can we do that? Searching our hearts, and then I'll uh, ask Pastor John to uh, come up back here in a moment and uh, finish with the benediction. Let's pray together. Covenant Life Church, know that as you go from this place, your Savior has promised to be with you in all of your work, in all of your vocation, and all of your making disciples' lives until he comes again to get you and bring you home and take you to be with him. And as you go, he also sends you with his benediction, his promise that he will be with you, which comes today to us from Numbers chapter 6. Receive the Lord's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you to his peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.